You may be seated. <clears throat> the bulletin this morning may be a little confusing. Um, we are going to look at Habakkuk three seventeen through 19. But what I'd like to do this morning is actually look at Habakkuk through a theme. A theme of promise and a theme of deliverance. The promise... Deliverance is a theme that we're going to look at through Habakkuk. So instead of reading the actual text that you have in your bulletin, we'll, we'll get to that eventually towards the end of the sermon. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're flipping through a lot of pages this morning uh, in Habakkuk, so bear with me on that. And the reason behind this is Habakkuk... In order to understand Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19, you've you got to see the progression that takes place throughout his writing. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful letter. Uh, and so I just want to make sure that we uh, kind of can chip off as much as we can regarding the rest of Habakkuk uh, as it builds towards verses 17 through 19. So we're good? All right, let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to your word and to what you have in store for us, Lord. Father, we pray that the Spirit will peel back layers and layers of our fears and doubts that we may have regarding your coming, uh, regarding uh, a lack of impatience, uh, a lack of waiting. Uh, Father, help us now as we look at Habakkuk to to go away encouraged by your word uh, and to see um, the beauty that's found in waiting. For praise in Christ's name, amen. So today marks the first Sunday after Christmas, so I hope everyone has recovered. Um, and I, tend, I love Christmas. If, if you ever get time with me and you get to know my likes and dislikes, Christmas is one of my favorite seasons. Um, I mean, you get to celebrate the birth of Christ, you get to exchange gifts. But it's interesting that we're at that phase now where gifts are, um, are not as big as they used to be. You know, if you want something now, you can just go out and buy it and purchase it. But for kids, the, the greatest gift on Christmas besides Christ is, is looking at the excitement on the faces of your kids. And so that's one of, my, what's one of the things I enjoy about Christmas uh, as well as Christ. But I come to realize this past Christmas, as I do, it always happens on the 26th. You know, it's kind of the depressing moment of Christmas. Everything's gone. You know, the tree's about to come down. And you just sit there and you're like, man, it's over. Now i got to wait a whole other year. And I come to realize that as hard as we try... And as, as hard as we try to shelter our Christmas traditions and our Christmas experience, we cannot escape the realities of the fallen world. We just can't. We cannot protect Christmas from the world. We have the pressure of trying to find the right gift. Regardless of the financial consequences that come with the gift, we, we feel the, the, the need to have to go and to buy that gift to make that person happy. Or even to, to make that person love us. We feel that pressure. 
We have the desire to make this simple and profound holiday perfect. You know, everything's got to be perfect. The decorations have to be perfect. The tree has to be perfect. The Sunday meal has to be perfect. And Christmas turns out to be a, a season of not of excitement or uh, of joy, but really we become very anxious. You know, we're very stressed, very um, kind of just f- everything opposite of what we should be feeling regarding the birth of Christ. It's a holiday meant to emphasize the birth of our Savior, but instead it has turned into an, an idol of that we try to, uh, to lift it up and to, and to keep it on its pedestal of, of, of being perfect. That's what we've made Christmas to be. We look to it as a means of, of meeting our needs and our wants. We look to Christmas as a way of, of filling our needs and our wants, hoping that in the end, after the presents are opened, we will be satisfied because we have what we want. Isn't that what an idol does? In a sense, it brings us that satisfaction. It gives what we want. I think too often we, we look for it to, to please us. And it never pleases. And so what do we do after Christmas ends on the 26th until the next Christmas? We, we wait. And we long for those, those feelings to come up again. We desperately wait and long for the day when, when that, that time of the year will come up again. When we feel those emotions again. Because again, Christmas has become more than celebrating the birth of our Savior. Habakkuk is living within this tension of waiting and longing. You know, we're waiting and longing for Christmas to come back to fill those emotions again, which feed our idol. But, but Habakkuk, is, he's living in a different kind of of waiting and longing. He's waiting and longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Now, what do we know about Habakkuk? Habakkuk was a prophet sent to Judah to prophesy to the people the will of the Lord. Most scholars would date Habakkuk serving during the time of uh, the king of Jehoiakim, which is around 609 to 598 BC. Besides that, we, we know nothing about him. We don't know where he's from. We don't know his parents. Even the opening part, if you look in Habakkuk 1, it's one of the shortest openings, verse 1, regarding a prophecy. So very little is known about Habakkuk. But what's interesting about his message, though, is that his message is not just a message where he goes and shares it to the people, proclaims it to the people, but he's called to live in his message. Very similar to what we find in Jonah and Hosea. You know, God is telling Habakkuk, you know, this is the message you proclaim to the people, but also you have to live it for the people. I want you to live it. I want the people to see it. 
And so we see all throughout his letter of this struggle with trusting that the Lord will fulfill what he has said he would do. And through all the doubts and through all the questions, somehow he's able to come to the conclusion of chapter 3 that the Lord is faithful. So that's why I think we need to look at the, the, the letter as a whole because we have to see the progression of him going from doubting and to questioning and to worrying about, is God really truly faithful to what he says he's going to do, to where he can rejoice at the end of in, uh, chapter 3 and say, yeah, he is. Yeah, he will. So what does this progression then, this complaint, this doubt, this fear, this struggle, what does it mean for us as we live in the eschatological, the eschatological tension of the promise and the fulfillment? As we patiently wait for Christ's coming, what does Habakkuk have to tell us about waiting? Waiting patiently. But I think to answer this question, we will look at this this letter, three, three different points. One, we're going to examine the realities of, of living in a fallen world because Habakkuk deals with that. And we'll go break that down a little bit as well. We talk about how the, what, what bridges promise to fulfillment is faith. Is his faith. And that the Lord will do what he said he's going to do. And then finally we'll look at the freedom to let go and to live. You know, I was thinking of that last point, and I'll never forget that sermon I did a few years ago on Frozen. You know, about the letting go song, and I used it as an illustration. So all of those painful memories and all of the, the, the feedback and the criticism I got for using that song. You know, my little girl was heartbroken because I talked about how bad the song was. It came back. But please know that point has nothing to do with the Frozen song, okay? So... Please let your daughters know that. But we can talk about the freedom of letting go and living and living for God. And as we look at these verses, we'll see how chapter 3 fits into all this. All right, so let's talk about the first point. So if you're taking notes, first point, realities of living in a fallen world. So we've talked about at the very beginning Habakkuk is, is struggling to understand God's, God going to fulfill what he said he's going to do. And we see that this is made evident in his first complaint. So if we're with me in chapter 1, we see he has the first complaint. He is complaining to God. Now this is something new. This is not new, right? We find somebody else, someone, someone else in Scripture is complaining to God. You know, Job is complaining to God. So I think it's safe to say that it is okay, brothers and sisters, for us to complain to God. It is okay. One of the commentators I read talked about, you know, there's this, there's this feeling sometimes as believers that we, we, we can't complain to God. We can't make our request known to him because, in a sense, uh, it's, it's somehow showing a, a division of the relationship between us and him. But he goes on and argues that, no, the complaining to God is good because if we do not complain to God, then it festers into bitterness, and then if we don't complain, then we would turn our hearts, we become bitter towards God. So complaining is good. So we see in this first point that he, he, he's complaining. 
He's looking at the fallen world and he's aware of the injustice that has taken place and he is complaining and he's wanting God to act. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Oh God, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry for you to you violence and you not save? So he's, he's quickly pointing out that there's something wrong within the covenant community. There's something wrong with a fallen world and God is not acting. And he's struggling to understand why God is not bringing judgment upon them. This sounds pretty similar to an extent, right? For us. We'll get to that in a minute. So these verses, he's he's highlighting that the covenant community, they're being taken advantage of by those who are wicked. And the second complaint that we see in A few verses over, verse 12, we see that he goes a little bit further. And he talks not only about how the the wicked are taking advantage of the righteous, the wicked are taking advantage of those inside the covenant community, but he also talks about how God is tolerating the wickedness. In this sense, he tolerates the wickedness of Babylon. But he's tolerating it. He's letting it happen. He's letting Babylon do what it's coming to do. We see this in verse 13. It says, You who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So you see Habakkuk has some, some issues here, right? Some major issues, some major complaints. He's looking at the fallen world and he's seeing how it's taken advantage of God's people. And he, he's thinking that God is, is not going to deal with it. He's not willing to deal with it. In the first complaint, in the second complaint, we see God's response that he is going to do with it. But in the second complaint, he sees that, that God is, he, you know, the, the, the tool, the instrument that God is going to use, which is Babylon, is... You know, why would he use Babylon? They're, they're hideous. They're, 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 they're prideful. They're puffed up. All they want, they're, they're horrible people. Why are you using them as an instrument to bring your judgment? So this, these are the complaints. And we see that the Lord responds. He tells Habakkuk, look, I'm going to deal with these wicked people. I'm going to deal with my wicked people. I'm going to deal with the fallen world. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation who march and seize the dwellings not their own. So in other words, God will bring judgment. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. So Habakkuk complains. The Lord responds and says, look, I'm going to do it. I told you I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. He's going to bring judgment. And he says he's going to do the same thing in the second point. Look, he says, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to deal with Babylon as well. I'm going to do it. But until I do it, wait. Wait. Look at what he says. He says, 
In verse 3 of chapter 2, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to an end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So he's telling Habakkuk, as well as he's telling us, that we're to wait. That what he said he's going to do, he's going to do. But we're called to wait. To be patient. For us, we are people who do not like to wait. I'm very impatient. Just talk to my wife. I got a book for Christmas, and I messed up, and I had the book come to the church. Here it is, Christmas Eve. The book was supposed to be delivered to the church, Christmas Eve night, 8 o'clock. We were here for worship, and I got so distracted, Christmas Eve worship, that I got home, and I forgot, oh, I left the book at church. 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I was tempted to get in my car and drive all the way up here just to get that book because I was so impatient. But my wife was wise and told me, it can wait. But we are impatient people, right? I mean, when we look at the fallen world out there and we, we see all the things that are happening, and we're saying to ourselves over and over again, you know, the, the world is turning upside down. When is the Lord going to return? I'm ready. And his response for us is to wait, to be patient. Even sometimes we don't even have to look on the outside world. We have to look sometimes maybe on the inside. You know, our fallenness comes in to the church. We look at the news, we read the newspapers, we can drive down Chanel and we can see the sin in the world. But some of the sins we don't see are the very sins that we bring into worship, or that we bring into our fellowship. We look at the world and we say, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. And we're called to wait. But then we deal with our own sins. And we're called to wait there as well. I think sometimes we walk through those doors right there. We forget how aware of our own, how we fail to be aware of our own sinful hearts. Are we aware of the pride that comes out in our conversations with our brothers and sisters? Are we aware of our selfishness and our lack of service to one another? Maybe we're arrogant. Maybe we're envious. Maybe we come in bringing our idols with us. Habakkuk is well aware of the fallen world out there, but he's also called to be aware of the inner world, his own heart, his own struggles. You see, his complaint is is really has to do with the covenant community. It's the covenant community, they're the ones who are rebelling against God. They're the ones who are taking advantage of the righteous. They're the ones who are actually sinning rejecting God. But God tells him 
to be diligent and to be aware, but to wait because the Lord is coming to make it right. Not just out there, but also in here as we deal with ours. We're called to deal with our hearts, right? We're called to deal with our sins, with our selfishness and our pride and our envy. We're called to confess it and to repent it and to turn to Christ. And we go through that same routine, that same cycle every single day. And it can be exhausting, right? But we're called to do it. We're called to be aware of our sin, to be aware of our fallenness. But we are able to persevere because we know that the Lord is faithful when he said he's going to come, he's going to come. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, Habakkuk, we see that this dialogue between God and the prophet, this, this idea of promise that he is going to bring judgment, that he is going to, to use Babylon as, as his tool of judgment, but he's also going to, to, to bring judgment upon Babylon as well. So we see the promise, and we see that the fulfillment is not yet there. Now we know if you know your Old Testament as well as just history, we know that God does fulfill his promise, right? Now Habakkuk is living in this time. All, of, all that the, God, the Lord is promising him as far as the judgment that is to come on Judah, that is going to happen in the future. And so that's why Habakkuk is told to wait. So Habakkuk has no idea. He, he's just told to wait. And to trust that the Lord's going to do it. But we know, looking back on that, looking back on the Old Testament, looking at Jewish history, we know that this promise was fulfilled. That the Lord did bring judgment upon Judah. 597, 586 BC, Judah was destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians. And we see that in 536 BC that the exiles are allowed to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple as well as to rebuild Jerusalem. But Habakkuk didn't see this. So he had to trust. And he had to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. So what kept him going <laughs> through the rest of his life? If 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 the Lord told him that he was going to do something, but yet it was not going to occur in his lifetime, what kept him going? What sustained him? It was his faith. Look at what he says in, chapter, in verses 3 and 4, chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write this vision, make it plain on table, tablets. So he may run, he reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to an end and will not lie. For it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. And he's speaking about Babylon. It is not upright, upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faithfulness, by the Lord's faithfulness. 
So the Lord in this passage informs Habakkuk that you're not going to see my promises fulfilled. You're not going to see. You're not going to see what I'm going to do to Judah. You're not going to see what I do to Babylon. You're not going to see it. You're not going to see the judgment. But you just have to have faith that I'm going to do what I promise to do. So Habakkuk believed. He trusted. He believed that what the Lord said he's going to do, he's going to do it. And that's why he was able to carry on throughout the rest of his life. That's why he was able in chapter 3 to rejoice. Because he had faith that God was going to be faithful to his word, that God was going to be faithful to his promises, that God was going to do what he told him that he was going to do. And as we look at this in our own lives, we look back on this, and we look back on Scripture as a whole, and we say, yeah, God is faithful. God was faithful to Habakkuk. God was faithful to all the Old Testament individuals. God is faithful in the New Testament. We see that. We see that he's faithful to us. He's, he's, what he said he's going to do for us by sending his son to die for us, to redeem us, to make us his. He has fulfilled it. But yet he tells us he's going to come again. But yet he's not here. He hasn't come yet. So what is going to get us through from now, today, until he comes again. Our faith. Our faith in trusting in his words. That he's going to carry out what he said he's going to do. Look at some of the promises that he made to us. He promised to us that he would be a God. Well, he made a promise to Abraham. He said that I would be a God to you and also to your offspring after you. Did he fulfill it? He did. He promised that he would swallow up death forever. Did he fulfill it? In Christ he did. He promised that I would never leave you nor forsake you. He continues to fill that one. But the last one we wait eagerly. When he promises that he would wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed. That is what we're called to wait patiently for. And we wait hoping and believing and knowing that that one will come to completion. So how do we wait? What are some ways we're called to wait? We don't know when he's coming back. We're called to wait patiently. We're called to continue in our faith and to trust and to believe that when he said he's going to come back, he will come back. What do we do? There's something we can do 
Is there something that the spirit inside of us does? One of the things I think we can do as Christians is very basic, but I think it is so powerful. It's that we can read and study God's word. You know, he tells Habakkuk that in verse chapter 2. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may, run, he may run who reads it. Why did he tell him to write on tablets? So that people can go back and read it and be reminded of it. If we're going to continue in our faith, if we're going to continue to persevere to the end, we have to be reminded of the promises of God. We have to be in his word. Life is going to get difficult. We are going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with death. We're going to struggle with finances. There's going to be mourning and there's going to be pain because we have to live in a fallen world. We have to deal with our own fallenness. But we can persevere through if we are faithful in reading and studying God's word. It's very basic, but I think sometimes we take it for granted. We take God's word for granted. And it's beautiful because it reminds us over and over and over again the extent that God went to redeem us and to make us his. I know it's kind of cheesy to say this, but I'll say this. Scripture is a love letter written by God to you telling you that how much he loves you in Christ Jesus. So in the previous points of the sermon we talked about, we kind of looked at the progression of Habakkuk. From Habakkuk 1 to 2, we, we discussed the complaints. He, he recognized the fallenness of the world. He was aware of that. He was aware of his own fallenness. We need to be aware of our own fallenness as well. And I think it's great for us to be aware of that because we, we're called to confess and to repent. And there's a cycle there. Sometimes the cycle can drag us down. It can it could make us very um, depressed. <laughs> I get depressed sometimes whenever I'm continually in that cycle of confess, repent, believe, confess, repent, believe. My youth, you know that cycle. I tell you that all the time. And so we're called to wait patiently, knowing that there's going to be a time when that cycle will end. But we come to the, towards the end of Habakkuk, and we see in, ver, in, chat, in verse 17 that he, he starts off, and the progression is that complaint, everything's falling apart, aware of everything. But then in verse 17, he has these inter, this interesting list of calamities to happen. You know, we, let's, you know the, the, the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit on the, be on the vines. The produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You know, all these calamities are happening. You know, these are pretty... Pretty significant calamities for Habakkuk, right? 
You know, the, 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 these, these are vital, vital things for survival. You know, this is food. This is clothing, you know, from the animals. Think of it in your life. It's, it's kind of as, um, you know, think of if the job market was to die, like just drop tomorrow and everybody was out of work. Or this huge famine would come across the whole United States and, you know, there's no bread, there's no wheat, there's, there's everything that we know is completely done away with. All the comforts are gone. Life as we know is turned upside down. And how does he respond? Our rejoice in the Lord. His response to all of those calamities is I will rejoice. I will praise God. Now, what is going on? How can we get to through all of this in Habakkuk to where we are in verse 17? How can he rejoice? Because Habakkuk has come to the conclusion through, through all the complaining, through all of God's response to his complaining, that the only thing that brings us comfort in this life the only thing that we should rely on to keep us going is the faithfulness of our Lord. It's not our money. It's not our jobs. It's not our security and those things. It's nothing, nothing for Habakkuk. Nothing is greater than trusting that the Lord would be faithful to what he said he's going to do. So that frees him up. That frees him up. Trusting that the Lord is faithful frees Habakkuk up to look at his life and say, I want Jesus and nothing else. Comforts will come and go. Jobs will come and go. But the only thing that will keep me persevering to the end is relying on the promises of God. Because what he promised, he's going to do it. He will fulfill it. We see this. Jesus says the same thing, right? In Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, or what you drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that neither sow, nor weep, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. If he said he's going to be with us, that he's going to take care of us, that he's going to provide for us, that is enough. Because if he says it, he's going to do it. So why be anxious? Why be anxious in this life? Let go. Let go of the anxiety. Let go of the worrying. Let go of the doubting. Let go of the complaining. And trust that God is going to be faithful to his promises. Because he will.
Our theme this morning in Habakkuk was promise and fulfillment. And it's interesting because we see that Habakkuk struggled with the idea of waiting, that the Lord would be patient, that the Lord would do and fulfill what he said he was going to do. He struggled with that. But as we see the progression, you know, he gets to the point where he said, I can persevere to the end. I can endure. Because he trusted that the Lord is faithful. He had faith that he was faithful. And as we, as we wait for the final coming of Christ, that promise, he will come back for us. We, much like Habakkuk, must be aware of the fallenness of this world, there the external as well as the fallenness of the world, our internal hearts, and seek Christ's forgiveness, and to confess, and to repent, and to believe. But let us also trust and rest and wait eagerly for the Lord. It's hard to do. We can get bogged down in this world. The burdens of life can press down upon us. Let us persevere to the end by trusting and believing in the Lord who is faithful to fulfill everything that he has promised us in Scripture. If he says he's going to come for us, he's going to come for us. Church, let's rest in that. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard sometimes to to wait. Father, and we can only imagine what Habakkuk had to go through. Lord, just waiting, Lord, for you to act, for you to do what you've promised that you were going to do. And Father, sometimes as 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 a church as a whole or in our own personal lives, Lord, we when I struggle with sin and Lord, we, we struggle sometimes with waiting ourselves. You know, a lot of times we do cry out, How long, O oh Lord, will you tarry? When will you come? Father, strengthen our faith. Help us to lean on your promises. Help us to rest in the assurance that we have in you through Christ. So that we can persevere to the end. So that we can, like Habakkuk, rejoice and say that the comforts of this life are nothing. 
but the promises that you give us are everything because those are what you fulfill. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.